David Premier is the founder and chief sales scientist at Cerebral Selling. He started his career tinkering test tubes and differential equations as an award-winning research scientist before spending the next 20 years leading top-performing sales teams. In the first half of our interview, we embarked down the path of David's journey from VP of sales to starting his own practice. Now, in this interview, I hear one of the most inspiring stories that I've heard since starting the podcast when David talks about overcoming cancer and what it taught him about sales. He also shares actionable tactics, including the concept of hidden pains, fixing asymmetry, and using polarizing statements to move sales conversations forward. Overall, this interview provides valuable insights and inspiration for anyone interested in sales, entrepreneurship, or sales consulting. An inflection point that I wanted to pick your brain about uh, that stood out to me quite a bit was you, know, you were a VP of sales at Salesforce. You came to Salesforce through an acquisition. And it's that inflection point that I was hoping that we could start with is understanding how in the world you were able to continue to grow sales more than 400% as you you know, went into the Salesforce big <laughs> entity, right? Your, your company was acquired. Uh, you were a VP of sales in the company that you were in originally, and then you were acquired by Salesforce and you still kept growing sales in that line. So in that period, I'm sure there's a ton of distraction, a lot of reasons why you wouldn't have been successful. How did you cope? How did you manage through that? How did you sell through that? Talk about that inflection point for us. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. You could have said, David, what, what was the worst point of your entire sales career? And I would have said the exact same. That first six months after we got acquired, hands down, was the worst in my sales career. And, you know, like revenue aside, like if I were to tell the rosy story, it's like, yeah, like, you know, two years after the acquisition, you know, we had hit our number at Salesforce, like both years. Actually, my second year, all of my reps hit their number, you know, made the president's club and all that kind of stuff. So from the outward perspective, it all sounded good. But inwardly, it was the worst point of my sales career, because you go from this elation of, you know, having a startup and we built this thing up and we got acquired by Salesforce and we're all like high-fiving and butt slapping each other and all the, you know, the investors are happy. And, and then you end up in this new environment and, you know, Salesforce was awesome. Like in terms of a company, it's funny now, I mean, they're probably, you know, 50, 60,000 employees now, they were 6,000 employees at the time, which is still like a pretty big company, mm -hmm. but you kind of, it's almost like going from like this small town high school, it's like a big city college and you're looking around and and you kind of you know you identify as a successful person because i just went through this successful validating event and all of a sudden you don't know how to do anything you know you don't know where the nurse's office is you know you know kids are beating you up in the hallway for your lunch money <laughs> you're not popular you anymore know, so, <laughs> and you're like i don't know how to like get stuff done right and so not only are you kind of learning how to get stuff done but you are um trying to overcome your own ego of like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm a successful person. And now I have to kind of figure it all out again. And I actually put a ton of stress on myself. I remember, you know, taking my kids to swimming lessons on the weekend and it was just consuming, you know, my focus, like how I can't not be successful at Salesforce because I'm a successful person. So, um, so that was really tough. And, you know, there's lots of ways we can think about that, you know, giving yourself some grace and all this kind of stuff, but that was really tough. But the, the, the take home message was you have to relearn how to be successful in that environment. And, you know, building a company, building a startup is the same thing. Like you're always behind. Nothing's ever how you want. And so it's the same thing at Salesforce. You have to be agile. You have to figure out how to get stuff done. The things that you said a day ago 
oh yeah, we're this small agile company. You can get in impact into our product roadmap and you can get access to our executives. And sure, termination for convenience, no problem. You know, we're agreeing to all this stuff. And now we're like at Salesforce and like, yeah, you can't do any of that. And by the way, like the product will probably change and, you know, we, we might put it out four times a year. And so you have to kind of learn how to navigate. So that, I'd say that's like, and actually it's a good lesson in agility. You know, right, if I were right. to take something away from it, but like that's, that's the trick is trying to figure out when you find yourself in a new environment. Okay. The variables have changed. How am I going to be successful? And that's what we had to do. Right. And you, I mean, you, you did well at Salesforce, as you mentioned, I mean, not just in that period, but continuing on through other roles in the organization. And then eventually you departed, you know, Salesforce, I hold in high regard. It's kind of, you know, uh, an idealistic organization for a lot of us that grew up in the Bay area around tech. It's like, Oh, Salesforce is the Mecca. Why the hell did you leave Salesforce? I mean, you would think you you had a good, you were doing well there and you, I'm sure you had options and, you know, at, you were a VP of commercial, I believe it was when, when when you left, if I'm correct. Yeah, VP commercial sales. You, you had a five-year run, roughly. Why'd you leave? Yeah. I, first of all, I love my experience at Salesforce. And I, I would say there's no way I could do what I do now had I not had that experience. First of all, the people are great. It's a very sales-centric culture. Not every company that sells something is a sales-centric culture, and it is. Right. Um, you know, people sometimes think, oh, it's very, like, high pressure and, like, which, you know, it is in a sales-centric I mean, sales. culture. Yeah, it has yeah, a monthly, yeah. yeah, there's a monthly cadence, like, there's an expectation. So, in that way, it's it's kind of good, but you got to kind of, you know, be prepared for it. Um, and I love my Salesforce experience. I ended up running small business sales for the eastern U.S. I'm out of Toronto managing reps in different cities. And having been a Salesforce customer in the past, I uh, had a lot of empathy in that segment, a lot of empathy for the, the customer experience. Uh, so why did I leave? So I love to, to build things. I love to kind of, you know, figure things out. I love to have visibility into all different areas of the business, you know, marketing, product, success. Like I was a startup guy. I'm a builder. I'm a, a research scientist by education. So I love that stuff. And I loved everything I learned at Salesforce. I think there's actually things that you can only tell in the sales profession um, when you see it at a certain scale. Okay. Comp plans, mm. month end cadence, you know, renewals, upsell. Like there's only, if you have a, a 20, 30, 100 person sales team, it's way different than having a multi thousand person sales team. So I love that experience. Why did I leave? You know, I, uh, I, I craved kind of going back to that experience of like building something uh, from scratch. And, and I remember kind of, you know, one of the stories I share is there was a time when we were moving uh, floors in our office. So it's like, okay, hey, David, you know, you, one of your teams in this office is moving from floor, you know, five to six, and we need to redo the seating plan of like where people are going to sit when they move. And I remember kind of going through this exercise thinking to myself, like, this is not utilizing as as much of my brain as I would like to, you know, not, you know. The movers you, are coming, you work, get your boxes ready and mark your yeah. boxes. <laughs> it's like when you work at a big company, yeah. you know, like a Salesforce, you don't have impact on things like marketing or pricing or contract terms and all that kind of stuff. You just have to focus on sales, which in and of itself is really hard, you know, but I love having impact into those other areas of the business and I miss that. And so I want to kind of go back to that building phase and, and that's what it was, but you know, I, I do not regret my time at Salesforce. It was amazing. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was just, it was just time to kind of move on to the next thing. Fair enough. And then uh, you, you 
joined another organization as VP of sales. So this is what 3x VP sales, uh, your third time uh, in that that level, if you will. Um, and from there is when I think you parlayed into starting cerebral selling. So were you mm-hmm. already thinking about cerebral selling when you were still at Salesforce and starting your own thing? I'm curious where where did that origin, where did that that seed get planted at? Yeah, hundred percent. So it actually started, you know, in the middle of my Salesforce experience. So we get acquired. I'm the VP of Sales of the acquired company. We're growing that, you know, business unit. But after a while, what happens with Salesforce and their acquisitions is they just take that team and they fold it into the core. They say like, all right, the the organization has like a pattern around how they sell this thing. It's now part of like the core product. We don't necessarily need a dedicated sales team to sell this thing. And so they kind of disbanded the whole um, organization. So the engineers went here and the you know customer success went here. And so we all kind of found uh, new jobs. And so in that kind of transitional period, um, you know, Salesforce, they didn't, they didn't want me to leave the organization. You know, I still, you know, was enjoying my time there. And so they kind of came to me and they said, you know, David, like, what would you like to do, you know, here? And I said, well, you know what? One of the things that, you know, I mentioned even earlier to you here is that like, I had a lot of empathy for the customer journey. And I said, you know, sometimes at Salesforce as a customer, everything that you kind of experience is like a thinly veiled product pitch, you know, mm. like there's, <laughs> it's always like, Hey, come see the future of whatever, but then buy this, you know? And so I said, like, I'm happy to, you know, to to run some customer events, some internal events for our reps to kind of give them a sense of like, you know, what it's like to kind of build the company, sell into people like me. Um, and they said, that's that's amazing. Like, yes, can you do that? And so I ended up writing for the Salesforce blog. They actually do like it when entrepreneurs come in from the outside, you know, fresh ideas. And so I started writing for the Salesforce blog in, in amongst of creating all these, you know, other programs. And the content ended up getting picked up by like Forbes and Entrepreneur. And I was like, oh, like, this is amazing. So I kept doing it. And uh, shortly thereafter, I ended up transit. So I did a bunch of customer events, speaking engagements, kind of just like spreading my wings. And, you know, huge credit to Salesforce and my my boss at the time, Tony Rodoni, who had like a 600 person sales org. And he's like one of these transformative leaders that everyone just talks about as like, oh, my gosh, Tony, like we love Tony. And so he gave me this opportunity to, to do this. Um, I ended up moving into that um, small business sales for the Eastern U.S. role within Tony's org, but I kept writing for Salesforce and the content kept ended up being picked up and I kept doing these events. And then when I left Salesforce, I kept writing for for Salesforce. Okay. (laughs) For Salesforce. Yeah. I would, you know, I would still do events and speaking engagements and all these kinds of things. And and I say kudos to Salesforce for giving me the opportunity to do that because, you know, as a research scientist, I love to learn. And when you think about like, what do scientists do? And I say now my title is chief sales scientist, which is right. Right. I love that. Mm -hmm. They say like scientists love to learn and they love to synthesize topics that could seem complex, you know, into terms that people can understand and apply. And so that's what I did, but I just did it for sales and leadership and entrepreneurship uh, in, in this practice, in this writing. And I left Salesforce, was VP of sales at this other company, kept doing these things off to the side because I love doing it, right? In addition to like running the sales of this company. And after about a year at this other company, I just, I had amassed all of this content that I had written. But when my friend Derek reaches out to me and says, you know, hey, David, I, you know, I had a question, but I heard you have good content. I had a question about objection handling or discovery. Like I heard you wrote this article. I would have to just send you links like all over the internet, 
you know, which I'm like, this is silly. I should have a website. So I, this is I, a great story. I remember, <laughs> yeah. I, you got pulled into it. Like, it seems like, yeah, like this is dumb. I just want to send you one thing. And I still have the templates. I remember when my friends, Derek reached out to me and said, you know, Hey David, we heard you have some content. I had a whole template of things like, okay, here's my articles in Forbes. Here's my articles on entrepreneur. Here's my articles in the Salesforce blog. Here's some podcasts I was on. Like, this is dumb. I should just have a website. So I created a website and uh, while I was still in my other VP role and I called it cerebral selling, I can explain where that comes from in you know, a little bit, but like this idea of like, you know, just thinking about sales and kind right. of, you know, the, the thought process around sales. Um, and I, I took all of the content I'd ever written and I reposted it to cerebral selling and then I kept writing and, and producing the content and people kept subscribing and kind of the following grew. And I said, you know what? This is the thing that I love to do most in the world. Why am I not doing this? Hmm. And there was some other stuff that kind of motivated me to, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about my journey, but motivated me to say, you know what? I think in general, people tend to overestimate the risk associated with things, you know, like what's the worst that can, so I leave this company. What's the worst that can happen? I try to start a business around cerebral selling. It fails. I'm not unemployable. I can always go back to do the thing I was doing before. And it's funny, a lot of people think, well, I'm going to go work for the big company. And that's going to be like, you know, I can, that's secure and safe. I would never go work for a startup. Too risky. Which I think is, you know, is, is a whole farce. Like everything is risky. Like everything not doing the risky. thing yeah. is risky. I mean, you too. see these big companies, Salesforce included, laying off 10,000 people. So, yeah. Yeah, 100%. So I, I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. So I turned cerebral selling into a business. And, you know, happy to talk about, you know, okay, yeah, so yeah. what the hell did that mean? But like, that's how it started. And so- People say like, was it scary to like start your own practice? I'm like, well, no, because I'd been doing it for you know two and a half years already, and I was already a startup guy, so it actually felt quite natural to kind well, of. Well, talk a little bit more about the client acquisition though, because it's you make it sound like hey, real easy. You were putting out the content, you formed the business. Did clients appear automatically? Those people who are reaching out, the Derricks that were asking you for advice on objection handling, were they converting? And now that you had a business and to clients, because uh, a consultant that's listening to this and thinking about that jump off point, if I'm a VP of sales and I'm looking to make that transition, the number one thing in my mind is how am I going to get customers? So early days, how did you get your first customers? Yeah. Well, it kind of reminds me of the, of the old saying, like, when's the best time to plant a tree? You know, the best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago. And so I was uh, in a good position because I've been doing this for a while. I had a good network and I'd been writing and creating content. So when I opened my doors, I, I you know, there was a bit of a following to begin with, which was good. Right. So my advice to people who are thinking like, how do I get into this? You know, rather than doing like drive-by pitches, I'll tell you, like I get pitched every day from people on LinkedIn trying to sell me stuff and I go to their profile and they have a business that they've been running for a number of years but they've got, you know, 800 connections or followers. And I'm, I'm not gauging followers by anything, but I'm just saying. Yeah, it's not the, you it's don't not have the vanity metric, but you're, yeah, to your point, it, network. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be a network. So um, what, and I'll tell so what I did, and this is actually my advice to people, because you need to have a starting point of like, what's your position? What's your content? What's your, the thing that you're going to sell? And so I use this analogy I call the comedy club which is, you know, comedians, they go, they're trying to try out new material, right? right. So they kind of go to the comedy club, they, they find like some dive place in their hometown and they're like, they just try out the material, see if it lands. And so what I did kind of near to the end of my tenure as in my last VP of sales role 
was I kind of did my comedy club. So I um, got some space in downtown Toronto at this, like, you know, kind of, you know, one of these, it was, I think it was called Brain Station, which is like a, you know, like a learning place. They do web development and, you know, they oh, have classes Brain Station, cerebral selling. There's a trend happening. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I said, you know what? Like downtown is where all like the startups and stuff were. And that's kind of where I worked at the time. I'll get some space at one of these like, you know, event facilities and I'll sell tickets to like a, a discovery workshop that I'm running. And I just did it like on Eventbrite or whatever. I, you know, I think that was the easiest thing. Eventbrite, hey, David's doing a thing. And I promoted it on my social media and to my email list and so on. And, you know, I and I had like 30 people or so show up to wow. this thing. I was Your like, okay. first so event, out the gate, 30 My people. first event. And it wasn't like cousins yeah. and aunts and uncles. It no. was like. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no relative. My parents, I don't think, still fully understand what I do. Yeah, my kids, you're missing school today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I, uh, so I kind of did the comedy club and then I ended up doing the comedy club like four times for different pieces of content until I kind of developed my point of view. And then I started putting the vibe out there that I was kind of doing this as a business. I started like talking about it on my blog and, you know, and again, I'm not saying, oh, here's what I did. Here's what you should do. Right. But being part of like the Toronto tech community and wherever city that you're in, if there's a community there, you know, even though I had great network in like New York and Atlanta or San Francisco or Chicago, like I started in Toronto because that's where my network was the biggest, you know, <laughs> having worked at all these startups, a lot of the people that I worked with were now at other companies doing things. And so when I kind of put out my shingle and I said, hey, I'm doing this thing, they're like, oh, yeah, like come in and you should do stuff for us. So I kind of had a little bit of a built in network right. as I kind of, you know, kind of got going. And, and that's really what helped me. Now, look, fast forward, you know, five plus years later, the content is, is way better, more refined. I charge way more than what I used to do. I have, you know, most of my businesses in the U S nowadays, you know, but, but like, that's kind of how I got started. Um, And so my advice to people, even like with public speaking, I remember the first time I gave a talk that where I charged, I was at Salesforce and Salesforce, I was kind of pretty by the bookie about this because you're not really supposed to have a job like pays you money at Salesforce, outside of Salesforce. Right. right. So, um, well, at your level specifically, yeah. I would imagine too, uh, some more so. I think in general, I mean, you know, okay. you're not supposed to have a side hustle because you're supposed to devote all your focus. But what I said was, you know what, I'm going to do this talk. And look, I always did my talks like I'm David, VP of sales at Salesforce. So it promotes the brand, but I charged this customer for it and I donated the money to charity. I just like, I just want to, I just want to see if someone will pay me to do this, you know? And I remember the first time, whatever I asked for, for my speaking fee, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe like I'm asking for money. I feel like embarrassed, you know, like, will you actually pay me for this? You know? And, and <laughs> I think when you start a business, the first thing that you kind of hope is like, I hope someone pays me to do anything, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I'm a sales consultant, but do you out. need your toilet fixed? I got you. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, what do you need? And, yeah, you know, you and a lot of need? my initial engagements were a little bit more, a little bit more consulting-y and a little bit more, okay, I here's the menu of stuff. And it's like, okay, when you ordered it, I would go back in the kitchen and make it, you know, kind of like for the first time. But eventually you kind of, you know, build up your repertoire and the thing that you are going to be known for knowing about, because especially in sales, as you know, there's all sorts of different disciplines. Oh, I help, you know, with prospecting. That's all I do. I work just with BDRs. I work just with leaders. I work just like whatever it is. So you have to kind of own whatever it is that you do right. so people know, oh, you know, Derek does this thing. I need to mm -hmm. call him for that. And so that's kind of like over time as you build up your practice, um, what you need to lean into to attract more of the clients that you're looking for. And now 
have obviously I've kept writing over the years. I wrote a book like, you know, I continue with the speaking and events and there's all sorts of things I've done to grow the business. But that's my advice to people. If you're thinking about, okay, I want to start something mm -hmm. or even like writing a book. When people say, oh, David, I want to write a book. I say, why don't you start by writing a bunch of blog posts or a blog post? Yeah, just right. to kind of help crystallize your point of view and see what people gravitate towards before you make the big investment of doing the whole big shebang. So I like the blogging. I like the comedy club. I like, you know, getting your feet wet as you try these things out, figure out what works and then lean into that stuff. Well, you mentioned the book and I know it's part of the curriculum in the sales courses that you lecture in. Um, can you talk about how writing the book helped shape your practice? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. A lot of the content that exists in the practice is self-referential. So, you know, I might give a talk on something. I'm like, you know what? That would make a great blog post. And I'll write a blog post about it. Or sometimes I have a blog post and I say, you know what? Maybe I should make a little video about that to kind of like explain a little bit more what I mean in Living Color about the blog mm. blog post. And so um, the book, why write a book, you know, and how does it fit into the practice? Uh why do you write a book? And this is actually, it's funny because a lot of people ask me, they say, you know, so David, I'm thinking about writing a book and it's about this. Like, what do you think? I'm like, why? Like, why are you going to write that book? And I remember this was the process as I kind of engaged with my publisher. They're like, okay, what's the book about? Who's it for? Why are you writing it? And of course, there's lots of reasons why you might write a book that you might not think about. Um, and I was really grateful for my publisher for kind of leading me through that. But um, I wanted to write the book partially because it was like a bucket list thing. It's like, hey, look, I like doing hard things. You know, I want to write a book. Um, I also wanted to write a book that kind of stood the test of time. I, I didn't want this. It's not a pamphlet for my business. It's not a, it's not a throwaway. Like it's a 70,000, there you go. <laughs> it's a 70,000 word, like proper book that I'm yeah. really grateful. Cause you write a book in secrecy and no one really reads it. And then it comes out and you're like, shoot, I, it's like a movie. It's like, I hope people like it. <laughs> you know? yeah. And uh, gratefully people ended up liking it. But what I want to do, and part of it is, you know, bucket list thing, but also part of why I run my practice is to kind of change people's perspective on kind of sales execution, because right. sales right. has kind of fallen into a bit of a, I don't know, groove over the years where because there's there's no like governing body of sales, uh, anyone can do it. And you basically learn from your sensei, you know, like whoever you're mad, I, I use the karate kid analogy at the beginning of the book. Um, but you know, you learn from your sensei and if your sensei was like a jerk, not as a human being, but just as like a seller, then you learn, you know, that motion. And so I wanted to kind of get back to this motion where we get really curious about the pathways and mechanisms by which human beings make purchasing decisions. Cause to take a step back, like I love sales. Sales gave me all of this, but I don't like talking to salespeople. And a lot of people don't like talking. Oh, to end of interview. People. <laughs> <That's good>. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, how can we get people? People mm -hmm. still love to buy things. They yeah. need to buy things, but they, they don't want to talk to salespeople. And I get it 100%. So but the question more, is why? I'm, more of my question, yeah. though, is how has it shaped your practice, though? Is it a calling card? Mm. Is it, I mean, is it a mm. considerable source of revenue to your business? Um you know, it's like I said, it's in you have it embedded into the courses within university. Um, someone like myself, I've not written a book. We talked about that. It's something that's always on my mind. Is it 
you know, if I go down this path, is it going to catapult my business? Is it going to catapult my brand? Is it going to really crystallize? Obviously, it's going to force me to crystallize my ideas. But, you know, I asked uh, Hillman Sori about this. He's written eight books. And I was like, mm -hmm. dude, you you, you got to help, help me understand how that helped you in your business. Because codifying the ideas that you have in the book, great. We can unpack that. But more as like, as a consultant, the act of writing a book and publishing books you know, we talk about blog posts and content and whatnot, but publishing is a, it's a different game. And it, it, uh, so I'm, I'm curious. I've always been tempted to do it. I know a lot of people who are in the space who haven't are probably thinking about doing it because it seems like it's a staple in all the, the most successful sales consultants. Trainers have written some sort of book or books. And I'm trying to understand, does it is it a significant elevator or is it a nice to have in your repertoire? Yeah. So uh, I would highly recommend, like if you're up for it, you don't have to, but right. like I would highly recommend the book process. And so what do you get out of it? Number one, you get to crystallize your ideas. You know, like sometimes it's tough when you're training on something, you're talking about something. When you have to put it into a book and you're in a position where you need to be able to explain to someone that you're not going to be able to talk to, um, that's very powerful. So it helps you crystallize your ideas. In terms of, let's get into like the nitty gritty in terms of revenue, it all depends. In general, most books, you know, I think the statistic is like 97% of books do not sell more than a thousand copies in mm -hmm. general, like in the world. Um, and having a blockbuster, you know, uh, Harry Potter or something like that, like, you know, or even a books that sell like, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies, like is rare. Uh, so if that's your goal, like that's going to be like, it's like saying, I want to start a startup and sell it for a billion dollars. Okay. Like you could, but like, that's also rare. <laughs> so like, what's the point of writing the book? Crystallize your ideas. It does provide you with like a certain amount of like credibility, like having written a book and published it rigorously and having people like it. Now, in all in all fairness, there's a lot of books out there. And again, it's funny because I'm in the process of writing my second book. Shh, don't tell anyone right now. <laughs> and and my publisher was like, sell the way you buy. Amazing. You did all the things you wanted to do. Uh, book number two doesn't have to, it could be half the size of sell the way. It doesn't need to be a whole thing. So uh, sometimes entrepreneurs will write like a small book. Right. That's right, kind right. of like a bit of a, you know, like a promotion of their business or like right the idea. It's like super thin, like 80 pages. Yeah. And, it's, and then there's the Grant Cardone style, which I shared with you, who is just like, whip it out, forget, you know, grammar, self-publish, <laughs> just, you know, all the mistakes included. And, but I got it done and then and it's helping me drive business, I guess. But yeah, he yeah. And you know what? Lot. I don't, I don't poo poo any of that. It's like, hey, look, if it if it achieves the outcome that you want, it's not on me to say, oh, it's a good book or not good book. Okay. So I say, like, there's lots of different ways that you can, if you're thinking of writing a book for your practice, that you can go about that. I wanted to write a book that kind of stood the test of time, um, that was kind of rigorous, that was you know academic, that people would you know hopefully like. And so, what does it do? Does it make money? Yes, it makes money. Um, is it like a huge chunk of my practice? No, like compared to training, speaking, coaching, all that kind of stuff. It's not a lot. However, uh, it does create opportunities. I have people all over the world who reach out to me, like from, from Europe, from Australia, from Asia, not California. just salespeople, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, California, like all over who say, hey, you know, David, I just picked up your book or I just listened to your audio book and I'm really loving it. I just wanted to let you know. Um, you know, I did a, a webinar a couple of weeks back 
And one of the people, when I do webinars, by the way, I, it's not like a, you know, there's the speakers and everyone else is like in the waiting room. Like it's a big meeting. So I see all these people and, you know, someone pipes up and he says, you know, uh, oh yeah, David, I just want you to know, I really appreciate all your coaching and all the things you, you know, helped me with. And someone said, oh, do you work with David? And he was like, no, 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 no. I've just been like, I read his book and I've been like, he, we didn't know each other. Right. So that's really just as a gratification, it's really powerful. Um, so it definitely creates opportunities. People will read your book and they'll reach out and be like, oh, this guy's interesting. Maybe we should have him do something. On the flip side, um, when you're talking to a client or prospect saying like, I have a book and like you can buy it or I can send you a copy or I can do like whatever um, is a great way to kind of get into people's minds because they don't want to hear from you in terms of like, oh, I'm going to convince you to buy something from me. Right. But a book is more arm's length. So that creates opportunities. Also, the last thing I'll say is, and this is partially from revenue, but also partially from an impactful standpoint, um, when you're giving like a talk or a keynote, you know, I have lots of clients who buy 500, 600 copies of the book to give out to the audience, people in attendance. Having an audiobook, a, a Kindle version, ebook, and a and a physical copy is great. Um, clients, prospects, partners, they love being able to give out something to people as a leave behind. Right. And uh, so in that sense, the book has achieved like all of the objectives I set out for the book. And the nice thing is the book's been out, you know, for three years, over three years already. And people still discover it. It's still, it's still modern, but timeless. It You could read it 10 years from now and it'll still be relevant, you know, yeah. in that time capsule and relevant. And, and so I'm really happy. So I would highly recommend if people are thinking about writing a book to, to do it. And, you know, as a secret thing, you don't have to write it yourself. Now mm -hmm. for me, I wrote it myself. I feel I need to be very connected with the words and the message. I'm also very particular, uh, just in, you know, in terms of how I run things. But if you have an idea, there's lots of services out there that will like write the book for you. An idea. Well, great. And uh, yeah, and congratulations on that. And good luck with the new book as well. Thanks for sharing that with us. I know we're a ways out. I imagine take some time to, to get these things out and ready, especially the quality, the, the caliber of writing that you put into your books. So um, looking forward to that coming out and getting a signed copy from you. Switching you gears, yeah. <laughs> switching gears on you a little bit. I want to, uh, before we get into some of the, the the best practices, the issues that maybe salespeople or sales leaders could benefit from uh, outside of the, the the journey and the things that we've talked about so far, before I switch gears on you, I want to ask a really important question around your your cancer journey. You are a cancer survivor. Uh, you've recently started sharing this with people. And two or three years ago, you wouldn't have talked much about it. Where in your trajectory did this come about? It was it pre cerebral selling, post cerebral selling, and what kind of impact did that have on you as a trainer? Uh, now that you've kind of overcome that. Mm hmm. Well, the first so the first time I was diagnosed with cancer was at the end of my first startup. So just before we got acquired by Salesforce, and then uh, my cancer came back uh, about a year and a half later. Uh, and I, when I talk about that worst period, I talked about off the top, like in my sell in my sales career, I feel that maybe that had something to do with it. I wow. put so much, I was That's so deep. stressed. I put so yep. much pressure on myself. Like I can feel it. I, you know, I tell the story when we got acquired by Salesforce, they got us these hoodies, these nice gray hoodies that had this like red dragon on the back for some reason. It had our logo and the Salesforce logo and it had the, like the date of the acquisition on the sleeve. And it was this whole thing. And when I see that, 
hoodie like hanging in my closet i get nauseated like i can't stand it it, so it takes you back to reaction. that moment in time yeah it takes me back to that moment so that's kind of when it happened um you know i worked through you know all my salesforce career but kind of the, the kind of the good thing about it is that you know when you have cancer and you know and i'll i'll go one step when you have cancer and you're in sales uh, the only thing that you want is to not have cancer. You don't, you know, you don't want to win President's Club. You don't want a big fat commission check. Like that's the only thing you want. So it kind of gave me a lot of focus and perspective, you know, and when times got tough at Salesforce, uh, I thought two things. Number one, it's just work. You know, like I, I came back with that new perspective. It's just work. Um, and number two, I was very grateful for being able to do what I was able to do. Like, the long road trips or, you know, working with people in different cities and the travel and the, you know, I'm like, I get to do this. Not I have to do this. I get to do this. It doesn't always feel like that sometimes, but um, the gratitude. Attitude of gratitude. And mm -hmm. yeah. And so um, after all of that time, and I kind of talked about Salesforce and post Salesforce, and I was writing and all that kind of stuff. I was like, this is obviously what I love to do most in the world. Why? should I not do this as my job? That's part of the motivation is like, no, I don't want to have too a regret. Short, effectively. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. 100%, you know? Um, and if I put all of my energy behind it and my, and you know what I said to myself, and if you're sitting there thinking, what I said to myself back to like the, I hope someone pays me to do anything. As I said, you know, I'm a VP of sales at a tech company, had my sales first journey, you know, money in that role is good if you're successful. And so I said, you know what? If I go out on my own, I actually don't even care if I make the same amount of money, if I'm enjoying myself and I have freedom and, you know, I'm adding value, I'm okay making less. And what's interesting is like in the first year, I ended up making more than I did as a VP sales. And, you know, now like five plus years into it, it's like not you even made more than you would have this is, ever been able to make. Yeah. In that, yeah. This is the highest paying job I've ever had. And I have freedom and flexibility and control. And I love what I do every day. It's not easy. I don't know. Get me wrong. It's not right, a cakewalk right. every day. Yeah. We still work for our but clients. I, it's not like we're like, don't have bosses. Right. Yeah. But I know I love, love, love what I do. And so that was the cancer journey was part of it. But then also, I believe that there are sales lessons to be learned in everyday life. You know, the way your kids negotiate with you. Like I, I always tell a story. I said, you know, when your kids are about to hit you up for something that they think you're going to say no to, you know, can you tell? You know, and people are like immediately, like right off the bat, right? And so when I think about the cancer journey, there's a lot of lessons that I learned. And I actually talk about this a little bit in the book. The funny thing about the book was that that was kind of at the time where I started talking about it publicly a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the beginning of chapter six, when I talk about discovery, so chapter six in the book is all about discovery. It starts off by saying, the worst part about having cancer is telling people. At least it was for me. Having to tell your family and friends that you have cancer is tough because it's an awkward conversation. They're all supportive. But like, I also don't want you asking me every day how I'm feeling. No, I'm fine. Like just, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't want it to get weird. So I didn't tell people. I didn't tell my kids who were young at the time. And what was funny was that I wrote about it in the book. It was a calculated, do I, do I come out in the book? And um, uh, one of my kids found out that I had cancer from the book, you know, but it was around that time I had to, I told my kids. Um, but 
what I learned from that, and I've since actually wrote a, an article recently on my blog. I was going to mention and that. And it was called, yeah, What Having Cancer Taught Me About Sales. And as secretive as I was about, yeah, I don't want people to think of me differently. There were people that I opened up to very quickly about my experience, you know? So if you and I were talking, you know, kind of one-on-one and you said, yeah, you know, David, I'm going through some stuff now. Like my, one of my parents was recently diagnosed with cancer and, you know, we're just, you know, I'm like, I would immediately say, oh, I hear you, man. Like I, I had this personal experience myself and I would open up to you. And so I found that there were people that I opened up to very quickly and I realized that from a sale, from a sales perspective, like trust can be built instantaneously under the right circumstances. So thinking about, you know, if you want to speak to a customer and you want to get them to open up about whatever it is they do in their business, like how do you establish that trust? This other element that like humans crave certainty. So imagine you're going through a cancer diagnosis and it's like, look, this is not my area of expertise. So I'm going for like MRIs and CT scans and blood work and, and surgeries. And I'm like, what's going to happen? And, and the doctors don't know either. It's like, well, it depends how you react to this. And we, we take it out and we put it on a Petri dish and we dissect it and we'll, and we'll know. And humans crave certainty. And we find ourselves, because our brains are prediction machines. It's like you go on a date with someone and they don't call you back the next day. And you're like, oh, what's, what the hell's going on? Like, what could this be? Yeah. So when you're waiting for like a test or like a result or something that's going to define your life, you're like, you are not cool with that. And the reality is not only as salespeople, like we also crave certainty. We want to know when the deal is going to close and we want people to call us back. But also, you know, our customers crave certainty around what we're going to do, like what their life is going to be like once we let them, once we they let us help them, right? So oftentimes when we are uh, pitching, doing discovery, we sometimes fail as sellers to inject that sense of certainty and confidence and conviction in our sales motion. So that's like another piece, things like mindset and resiliency, right? You know, to be in sales, you need to be resilient. And you also have to have like this mindset of like, you know, I need to come in and, and with conviction and passion, prescribe a course of treatment for you as the customer that you may not want to hear, you know, based on my experience. And so anyways, there's so many lessons, you know, that I took away from that experience. And I feel like, especially in sales, people tend to separate sales and life, right? Uh, especially if I can call like the bad salespeople who I actually believe are not bad people. They're good people who learned or learned either to do sales the wrong way for the times and, or they just have bad habits that they can't let go of. They're not bad people. And sometimes we need to kind of help them undo some of these things that they've, you know, uh, kind of learned along the way. And um, anyway, so that, those are some of the things that, you know, I uh, I kind of picked up from that journey. And uh, I, I, to this day, say it's one of my greatest blessings. One of my greatest blessings for sure. Wow. You Thankfully, know. I'm, you know, I'm healthy now. And you exactly, know, exactly. Well, that is a tremendous lesson uh, in being able to shift our perspective to the positive and look at these things that happen in our life as opportunities to learn and I can't think of anything more extreme than than that example of, you know, being faced with your mortality and saying, wait, at the same time, this is an opportunity. It's forcing me to look at things differently and, you know, do better by people as a result, which which you're doing. You mentioned the book uh, Discovery and how that ties into this. 
I'm going to change gears just quickly on you, but still keep it relatively uh, consistent. We talked offline about discovery. We talked about what you're seeing often with your clients these days in terms of like top problems and their ability to kind of articulate what's happening in their business, right? Like they don't know what they don't know. Sometimes they can't understand why people aren't able to sell and convert. And obviously this comes back to the discovery process. So because you queued up that chapter, I, I want to go down this path just briefly. So we talked offline about not showing the product. And I think this is somewhat controversial depending on how you position it and how you, you kind of answer this for people. A lot of folks are Hey, I'm going to, I'm a demo King, right? No one can demo this product better than me. And your thought is like, one of the worst things that we can do is actually show them the product or at least too early. Can you elaborate on that concept? Yeah. So let's take a step back. Why do people buy things and why would they decide to invest in your product or service? So they would do that if they came to the realization that they had a big enough problem that they needed to solve. And most importantly, that they couldn't solve that problem on their own. Because a lot of times when we encounter a problem, we think, oh, I'll just duct tape that or like, it's not that bad. You know, it's you know, it's just a cut. I'll, uh, you know, I'll put a Band-Aid on it. It'll be fine. Uh, I call this sometimes the Olympic swimming conundrum, which I, you know, if you think about like watching any sport, you know, you're watching swimming or running or a sport that you play and you watch, you know, professionals do it and you're watching it and you're thinking to yourself, I could do that. It's not so hard. You know, it's like just swimming, it's just running. It's just, but of course you couldn't. Yeah. yeah. And there's reasons why you can't do that thing that sometimes you're not in touch with. As customers, we always think like we can solve the problem ourselves. And so we operate on this principle. I'm going to get all nerdy is like this, the physics principle, Newton's third law of inertia, which is status quo bias. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing because it's sometimes the pain of changing is like too hard. Even if the change actually comes with some monetary benefit. You know, we're going to save money. We're going to. And so we just kind of keep doing what we're doing. And so here's the problem. When we onboard new sales reps, we think that it's really important for them to understand the product, how to show the product, demo the product. Uh, you know, uh, if we have multiple products, here's our catalog. Here's the wheel of shit that we sell. And that's kind of how we enable people. And especially if you're a younger or newer seller and the average age of a seller is, continues to like decrease over the course of time, these young sellers who are trying to call on more experienced buyers whose job they've never done struggle to manifest confidence and conviction, especially when the only thing we've armed them with is a product demo. Yeah. And why you shouldn't, and by the way, like I say this, for the first eight years of my sales career, I was a solutions engineer, solutions consultant. I led SC teams. I would do custom coding for demos. Like I would do demos for banks, airlines. I love the demo. The demo can be transformative, right? But I've never seen a poorly orchestrated discovery process kind of ended with a with a demo of something that made the customer say, oh, now I get it. <laughs> right, right. You know? <laughs> You didn't take the time to understand them. me. And then you took me through a Harbor tour and bam, I'm enlightened. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, 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 the product is never like I say, like hardly ever that transformative until we, we've deepened our customer's awareness of the problem they have and why they can't solve it themselves. 
And my advice is for people like spend three quarters of your initial meeting, not even talking about what it is that you do. Talk about the problem, deepen the you know customer's awareness of the problem. Like, let's say, for example, you're listening to this show now and you are a practitioner and you have like a you know, sales consultant to your practice and you're trying to figure out, okay, I know what I want. I want to grow this thing. I want to attract customers. And you know how to do that. If I were to ask anyone listening here today, like, how would you grow your audience? You would say, well, I would prospect. I would try to identify, you know, my target buyer. I would I'd put tap out into some my content, network. Yeah. Tap into my network, write a book. Okay. Right. You know what you need to do. But if you're listening out there, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, like, you know, David, Derek, like I'm doing those things, but it's, you know, my business isn't taken off or it's not like where I want it to be. And you don't know why. So if I came to you and I said, you know, hey, like here, you know, here's the trick, you know, write a book, do this. Let me show you a demo of like my, you know, how I train my clients. Like you would smile and nod and then just go back to your desk, still being confused about like why you can't do what you do. And you would be reticent to invest in my products or services because you still don't know why you can't do it on your own. But if I said, for example, I said, you know, look, a lot of people, they love, you know, writing books and blogs and all that kind of stuff. One of the biggest mistakes people make is they don't do it consistently enough. They write a blog post once a month, you know, they send out their emails like, you know, once a quarter, customers are confused why they're getting this email from you. Anyways, I'm just kind of, you know, I'm making this up, although that's kind of true what I said. Yeah, exactly. It sounds pretty relevant. <laughs> you know, and, and now you're listening to this thinking like, oh shit, that's what I'm doing. All right. That, so I'm doing the, some of the right things, but I'm not doing them in like the right way or not doing them consistently enough. And by the way, I might have a course where I talk about like how to grow your consultancy and practice and all that kind of stuff, which I do not. But if I can just deepen your awareness of the problem and why you haven't been able to solve it yourself, it's automatically, number one, going to create like that deeper sense of like awareness. Sometimes I say, you know, if you want to sell someone a Band-Aid, you have to cut them first. I say that in the best possible way. Like, all the best infomercials do that. It's like deepen your press awareness the pain, of the customers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Press the pain. And there's a right and a wrong way to do that. And then spend the time on, okay, like here's what the future could look like. Here's the problem that exists in the market. Like, for example, if I say to you, and we're talking about like why a sales team might be struggling. We've been talking about this. You have young sales reps. You train them on things that they need to know, but they end up leading with those things incorrectly. They demo prematurely. They don't deepen their customer's awareness of the problem. And we're talking about all these things. Now, you, let's pretend that this, you just started listening to that part of the conversation and hear the stuff before. You would have no idea what I do. You would have no idea what my practice is all about. But all of a sudden you're like, shoot, this guy's like talking about stuff that seems to make sense. And he's hitting on some pain points and he's illuminating some of these things. This is what I, I have a, a video on my, my uh, YouTube channel called The Ninja Pitch. It's like this, I love that. Yeah. this pitch that, that comes <laughs> out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, I put the mask on. So do, go to the YouTube channel, Cerebral Selling, take a look. But it's like, I sometimes refer to these as like the hidden or unspoken pains. It's the problems that you have that you're not holding back on me when I ask you what your problems are. You just are not in tune enough with what those things. Because you might say, hey, look, David, I'm blogging. I'm, you know, I'm flexing my network. But I'm like, but you're not. And here's why. Now, after all of that, if we had a whole long discussion around your pains, why you can't solve them, you would start automatically seeing me as someone who can help you because I'm pressing on all the, I know where all the bodies are buried in your business. 
And you're going to be interested to hear what I have to say about my products and services and things that come after that. That is the best possible position for you to be in. The customer does not need to leave the initial meeting, seeing a demo of your product and like seeing a picture of your headquarters and knowing how many employees you have or how many funds you've raised. Soapboxing, the soapboxing, yeah. Yeah, you need to deepen their awareness of the problem and why they can't solve it themselves because they know what they want. They want to grow their business. They want more efficiency. They want to, you know, you know, have a life of purpose. They know how to get it. They just don't know why they can't. That's, that's why people pay consultants to come in and be smart and solve the problems that number one, either they can't solve on their own or they can't articulate because they've never been able to put their finger on it. Like that example, I'll just leave with this, like that example of like customer says, you know, and I, cause I saw this at Salesforce. This is kind of where this came from. I ended up writing an article that ended up getting published in a Harvard business review. It was called how younger salespeople can sell to older customers. Every and SDR going to read this still super relevant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so if you, so, you know, in, in HBR, it's kind of a more concise article on my site. I have an article, it's called, um, Fixing a uh, experience asymmetry, which is what I call it. It's called fixing experience asymmetry, the problem with calling high and how to fix it. And it talks about this concept. Now, I saw this at Salesforce where I would have these young, enthusiastic salespeople, especially my New York City sales reps always called the most. But I had these reps with lots of activity, no pipeline. So I was like, what the hell is going on? Like they're making the calls, like they're, you know, they're hustling. They have enough accounts. Like Derek, what's going on? He's like, no, I got, I got accounts. I got white space I can call into. Like I'm, I'm working at Salesforce. There's lots of marketing air cover. I don't know what the hell's going on. So I would just have to listen to their calls. I'm like, all right, let me just listen to a couple calls and maybe I can kind of pick something up. And I'm listening to their calls and I'm like, Derek, it, it sounds to me like you're, you're bothering this customer. Like that's what it sounds like. It sounds like you're a kid who has never done the job of the grown-up that you're calling on, and you're saying all these things that someone told you to say that you don't believe in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, buzzwords, and they can tell, and you can tell, and that fear is manifesting. And so that's what I talk about experience asymmetry. Now, people I, know I when tell you're you bullshitting, basically. <laughs> yeah. They know. People yeah. can feel it. Like you can feel when you're about to be pitched. Right. Like you can feel it. Like that's the whole point. It's awkward like, for everybody. You're nervous and scared. They know you're nervous and scared and you don't know what you're talking about. And they're trying to be polite to, to some degree, maybe to just get off that call and move on with their day. That's it. Now, here's the here's the magic. Out of all the clients I've ever worked with, how many have this problem? Almost all of them. How many of them have brought this problem to me when I say so? Like, hey, like, you know, why do you think you're not selling as much as you want to or struggling. No one has ever said, I've listened to my reps on the phone and I can hear the fear and uncertainty and lack of conviction in their voice. And I fear it's like rubbing off on the customers. No one has ever said that to me. But when I say that to them, all of a sudden they're like, yes, David, that thing that you said. That's the thing. (laughs) We have that, right? And so now I put form to the problem Mm. that they're experiencing that they were not able to pinpoint and why? Because I'm the doctor. I see patients all the time. This is what I see all the time. Like that's why people hire consultants. Is we see yeah. this stuff all the time. Yeah, the, like we synthesize this for you, and we talk about that. And all of a sudden, just with that, and that's why I say, you know, you want to write a book, you want to write an article, you want to write a blog post. It can't just be what everyone else is saying. 
You know, like what is the thing that you're going to be known for knowing about? I don't teach sales at like a third grade level. No, not at There's all. There's lots of people that do that, you know? <laughs> yeah. I love getting deep. Cerebral. The getting <laughs> cerebral, that's yeah. it. Because getting deep, and that's funny, you know, I, I actually, I talk about this. Um, I think I maybe even talk about this in my article. Where did the word cerebral come from? Like it's a word in the English language. But I remember it was after my cancer surgery when, uh, you know, you get to know your cancer surgeon, you know, it's it's an intimate moment. Yeah. And uh, he's like, okay, so David, you're a pretty cerebral guy. So I'm going to explain it to you like this, you know? And like, that was the first time someone called me cerebral. And that's actually where it came from. But um, mm. there's so much to be made of like diving deep into like how your words, your tone, your approach makes people feel and how you can systematically manifest the right words, the right conviction, the right tone, the right approach to convert people on an emotional level. So that's what I focus on in my practice. But again, a lot of people are focused on like, how many calls should I make? And like, how do I, you know, like, how do I get someone's phone number? And like, what should the sequence the be? Workflow, and there's nothing the wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You need that. Right. You need that. That is not. But your point is at I the center of all of that, the focal point is that communication layer and how you're able to understand, convey, persuade, whatever label you want to give it. It's in that communication label uh, layer. I said in our prep call, the ability to communicate value, but you corrected me even then. It's, it's, it's bigger than just being able to communicate value. And so that layer of discovery and getting deep with the pain. One of the things, and you know, we, we're got to wrap here because I, we've been going long and I know you have a, plenty of other things to do, but you mentioned the words. So leave them with your gem around polarizing statements. Yeah. So this is like the easiest tactic I teach for describing what it is you do. And there's lots of ways of describing what you do. Uh, the way I kind of think about this tactic, it's almost like if you're going into a car wash and then like the little chain pulls your wheel along, yeah. it's like a device that kind of helps you get into the right mindset. So the idea is this, you know, uh, to explain what it is you do, use the words love and hate in a sentence. And the love points to like the end results or the, the task that your customers are trying to achieve. And the hate speaks to like that hidden pain, like that enemy that is preventing them to, from getting what they want. So for example, at my third startup, so this is the company that got acquired by Salesforce. If you ask me, David, what did you do? We would say, oh, we're like a feedback coaching and recognition platform. You know, it's a platform for employees at work to get feedback and coaching and recognition about how they're doing. And you might smile and nod and say, oh, yeah, whatever. That's, cool. I guess that's yeah. good, right? Yeah. But we didn't lead with that, or at least we eventually did not lead with that. What did we do? We led with, we would get on stage and we'd say, hey, you know what? Millennials in the workforce, tons of young people. And we realized young people at work, they love feedback, but you know what they hate? Performance reviews, right? And so now all of a sudden, if you worked at a company where you were getting bombarded with the request for feedback from your team, and the only tool you had was a performance review, which they said they used the word hate to describe. Now, all of a sudden you're like, well, what is this? Uh, company called Trunk Club based in Chicago. Men love to dress well, but they hate to shop. Facts. Right? Now, now if you're a man, it's targeted message. If you're a man and you love to dress well and shopping is not your cup of tea, now all of a sudden you're like, well, what is this? Now it happened to be a, a virtual shopping platform for men, but like, love to dress well, they hate to shop, right? 
And so think about how you would use the words love and hate in a sentence to describe what it is that you do. And the more hidden and cerebral you can, you know, get the better. So like, you know, I might say something like, hey, look, you know, Derek, I work with, you know, entrepreneurs, consultants like you all the time who love the idea of like growing their business, but they hate the fact that they secretly know in their business, they are doing things and spending time on things that they shouldn't be doing. I say that quietly, right? Yeah, and you're uh, like, we're all going to steal that one. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh man, why am I updating the website? Why am I editing the videos? That is not the best use of my time. And so now it's like, what do you have? Like, what is this? Like, do you have a solution for this? So it gets people to lean in yep, and say, tell me more. And the nice thing is, it also repels people who don't align with your mission. So for example, if you're a man and you love to dress well and you love to shop, right? These not going to resonate. Things. Yeah. <laughs> but Self like, then yeah, mm -hmm. then I'm not interested. Right. So polarizing statements are very po like powerful for so many reasons. So that would be my one parting advice. gem there for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you are curious and want to help your team become more cerebral in their selling tactics and get to the point where they can get their prospects to lean in, just like uh, David just did right now. Look them up, uh, cerebralselling.com. Is that the website? Yeah. Where can people yeah. find you if they want to follow you? And I know you stopped doing Instagram a little bit. So you're, I think, more focused on other uh, platforms. Where would you have people follow you? Yeah. So like LinkedIn. Is, so, so the website is always great. LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to connect. Tell me, you heard me on uh, Derek's show here. Uh, as well, I have a YouTube channel called Cerebral Selling as well, a Facebook group. But you can find it all on my website, CerebralSelling.com. So that has everything. It also has links to the book. The book is called Sell the Way You Buy. You can get it on Amazon or Audible or wherever you buy books. But uh, yeah, reach out. Uh, even if it's just to say hi, I you know try to put out lots of content, help uh, help the world as much as I can. You've been listening to the Sales Consultant Podcast. If you enjoyed the interview and would like to support the show, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or on Spotify. Please also consider following our LinkedIn page. If you're an industry expert or if you know an industry expert that should be on the show, message us on LinkedIn at the Sales Consultant Podcast.